It is. Now, let us turn again to the book of Esther, chapter 3. We come now to chapter 3. And uh, we will only work our way through the first six verses tonight. It's not a long chapter, but just the first six verses. Persia's public enemy number one. But who is? Haman or Mordecai? Persia's public enemy number one. So, verse 1, Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And we'll just stop thus far. Now you know as you read uh, through the first two chapters, as we have done so and worked our way through those first two chapters, you get the sense, don't you, I think that, that something's going to happen. We have had introduction to a variety of things that have been happening in Persia. But now you sense that having laid the foundation, having established the narrative that the writer is seeking to do, he's going to introduce something, something startling, something new for us. So you sense that in Persia, from chapter 3, when you read it, that something is changing, something is happening. Now we remind ourselves that Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus, has lost his wife, Vashti's gone. He's lost his war with the Greeks. The coffers, Persian treasury, they're empty. There's no money. There's no riches. Later on in chapter 3, you discover that Haman is willing to pay 10,000 talents into the king's treasury, which of course would perk up Xerxes' ears because, frankly, he's bankrupt. Persia needs money. Persia needs capital. Xerxes needs money to do what he wants, to do as he pleases. So things in Persia are not all smooth sailing, as, as perhaps you might think. Just as I think in any country, you go along for a while and things may seem okay, and then they take a turn for the worse. You don't quite know how did that happen, where did that come from so fast. I think we experience some of those things in our own country right here, right now. Change comes in, and things change so quickly. Now, chapter 2, of course, gave us Esther... And Mordecai, up until uh, through chapter 1, we knew nothing about Esther, we knew nothing about Mordecai. But now we are introduced in chapter 2 to them, and you sense from that chapter that both Esther and Mordecai, <clears throat> they form a significant part or a story that is about to be told as we read through the book. We've already learned from chapter 1 and into chapter 2 so much about King Ahasuerus and Xerxes. And I've tried to, to draw you in to the historical references and the historical connection that Persia, the ancient kingdom of Persia, makes that sometimes you don't discover or read on the page, on the face of Scripture. We have gained, I think, some perspective on Persia and also some perspective on Ahasuerus or Xerxes. We've, we've seen how it functions, how Xerxes functions. He's a man of pleasure. He's a man of drink. He's a man who likes money, a man who likes power, and a man who likes many women. He's just a man of the world. He's no different from anybody else. He really is descriptive of man in his sin, all men and women in their sinfulness. <clears throat> and Persia has this man as the number one, as the king. 
He rules the country. He rules the kingdom. 127 provinces. His power is throughout. Everywhere displayed. Nobody goes against Xerxes or the king. And we've tried to see how he functions. How he, how he operates. He's, he, he's really almost like a child who, who takes the advice of, of others and whatever they seem to suggest to him. As long as it's to his advantage, he will play that hand. He will use that for his own purposes, for his own elevation. And so as we've considered that, we have seen also how people operate or how people think in Persia. That they themselves are living their lives, these Jewish exiles, for example, of whom Esther and Mordecai are part of, how they live their lives under a sovereign Persian king. And so they have assimilated themselves. They're part of the kingdom. And you just get the idea when you read Esther that both Esther and Mordecai have, have assimilated themselves into that culture, into Persia. And they continue. In fact, we know already that Mordecai has told Esther not to reveal who her people are. And you sense that that non-revealing or unrevealing of the name of their people, the nationality of the Jews, is significant. And you pick up here in chapter 3, don't you, the significance of that for Haman. How the fact that Mordecai is a Jew and there are a whole bunch of people out there in Xerxes' kingdom who are Jews is something that he sets himself against. So we're trying to insert ourselves. Here we are 2,500 years later. And we're trying to insert ourselves back into a history that is ancient, that is old. We're trying to put ourselves into the mind of Xerxes, into the mind of Esther, the mind of Mordecai. And that's not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, you try inserting yourself into a foreign culture today. It's not an easy thing to do. First you have to learn language. First you have to learn nuances of the language, idioms of the language. You have to learn the culture. You have to learn how people think. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And I can speak from experience that there are still some things that catch me by surprise after a long, long time in this country. Things that, that you just don't expect, that you weren't thinking about because your mind thinks another way. So to insert yourself into an ancient culture 2,500 years old is not an easy thing to do at all. And immersion into a culture, which is very difficult, takes time and takes practice, doesn't it? This is what we've been trying to do with the Scriptures as they unfold for us the kingdom of Persia, the life of Xerxes. And so on. You can read about uh, Persia and Greece and all of these ancient kingdoms in, in ancient literature. And you discover how they functioned and how they thought. And so what I've been trying to do is to take, take that, that information, that literature that exists out there and, and see what Scripture does and says and how that connects together. Because Scripture doesn't tell us all there is to tell us about the ancient kingdom of Persia and how it runs and so on. And so to explain an ancient kingdom with all of its practices is no easy task that the, the student of the Bible, that you and I as students and readers of the Bible, that we undertake and, and seek to understand. It's no easy task to do that. One of the great difficulties that we all have is that we tend very strongly to read into a foreign setting our own set of values, our own stereotypes. We're very Western. In fact, we're so Western that we probably don't know how Western we are, or perhaps should be. But we're Western. And we're talking about inserting ourselves into an Eastern culture. And when you think about Eastern cultures, you recognize that they're subtle, and they're different, and they're barbaric, and they're violent. So Persia, ancient Persia, is a very different cultural setting, historical setting, for the Bible student to try and understand and put themselves into. And modern Western thought is not ancient Persian thought. And our modern sense of values and so on is not Xerxes' sense of values or Persia's sense of values. And it's certainly not Haman, the Agagite's sense of values. So we're trying to understand this. So we use what we have at hand. What do we have at hand? I have the Bible, don't I? So I use the Bible, but I have histories that I can read, and I have, I have archaeology that I can study, and so on. Down the line, you can look at a variety of things that all throw light onto an ancient world. In fact, we even do that when we study the kingdom of Israel, because not everything that can be said about Israel is in the Bible. Archaeology unfolds and reveals many things that the Bible confirms. So we make use of these extra 
things in order to understand and see how they fit and they tie in. One thing I have discovered is that none of the histories, when they are truthful, and none of the archaeology reveals something that the Bible does not reveal. There's no contradiction. The Bible is right. The Bible is true. The Bible asserts itself. And so we use those things as far as they are able to help us understand Scripture and what we need to know to understand the minds and the hearts of an ancient people, and certainly a mind like Haman, the Agagite. Scripture then does not always explain to us what we need to know, and it does not always defend that which we need to know. It doesn't defend always ancient cultural or cultic practices. It just states them as it finds them. And we find ourselves then having to work around those things. The danger, of course, is always for you as a student, as a reader, to read far too much. And the danger exists for a preacher, of course, to not read too much into the text, that which is not there. So that's what I'm trying to do, to hold myself back from reading too much into the text, or reading anything that the text would not substantiate. So behind chapter 3, right, behind chapter 3 stands our knowledge that we have gained so far from chapter 1 and chapter 2. The introduction of Ahasuerus and his kingdom, and the introduction of Esther and Mordecai. Now we found ourselves being introduced to new character, to someone new. And so as the narrative continues... We want to be able to make connections to satisfy our curiosity, to satisfy ourselves, or to put it in biblical terms, to build our faith, to strengthen our faith. Because isn't that the purpose of Scripture? That Scripture is given for our profit. Scripture is given for our edification. Scripture is given to strengthen our faith, to build us up in our most holy faith. So you'll notice in verse 1 then of chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman the Agagite, And two things stand out in verses 1 and 2. You can't miss them, right? First of all, his promotion. And secondly, his position. His promotion and his position. You could add, if you like, also his pedigree. Because he is described as Haman the Agagite. What does that mean, right? So we first of all want to address ourselves then to this new man, this new character. That verse 1 says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Who is he? Who is Haman the Agagite? Notice that he is not just Haman. The Bible doesn't say Haman. He says Haman the Agagite. There might have been a thousand Hamans in Persia, perhaps. But the writer wants us to know that there is just one Haman the Agagite. It's just one. Just this one man. He is described, notice, as an Agagite. And so he has introduced us, I think, through his genealogy, through his pedigree. Much like Mordecai, right, back in chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 5, it says there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Notice how Scripture states it, right? There was a Jew who lived in in Susa. His name was Mordecai. And who is he? Well, he's the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Standard Jewish record of a son from a son from a son. And not only that, but a tribe, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem. That's Kish. Among the captives with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So we're introduced to Mordecai's genealogy, his pedigree. The writer does that so that you gain a perspective of who who is this man, Mordecai? Is he significant? He's a Jew. There was a Jew in Susa. Yes, he's important. And that's what the writer is doing. So he introduces us here to this man, Haman the Agagite. This is intentional. This is the writer drawing our attention. So that when you read the Bible, it's not just a story and you get to the end and you say, well, that was a wonderful story at the end of the book. No, there are things in the book, in every verse, that are designed by the writer under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to make you stop and think, why? Why is that there? So here's an intentional uh, action on the part of the writer drawing our attention to both Mordecai in chapter 2 and now to Haman in chapter 3. By the way, Haman the Agagite is mentioned in Esther 
by that phrase or that title, Haman the Agagite, a number of times. You'll see it in verse 10 also, chapter 3, chapter 8, verses 3 and 5, chapter 9, verse 24, Haman the Agagite. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it immediately draws our attention to ancient history. Represented, of course, in the genealogy of Mordecai, who is of the tribe of Benjamin, whose great-grandfather in chapter 2, verse 5, was a man named Kish. And of course, that reminds us all of King Saul, doesn't it? Because King Saul was also of the tribe of Benjamin, and King Saul was also the son of Kish. So there's a connection. You can see by mentioning those names, the writer immediately makes you think of King Saul. And when he talks about Haman the Agagite, he immediately makes you also think of King Saul. And of course, I think very strongly that the Agagite, Haman the Agagite, is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites, who in 1 Kings chapter 15, King Saul was told to blot them out, to utterly destroy them. And of course, Saul failed to do the express command of God. And what happened to, as a result of that? He lost his kingdom to David of the tribe of Judah, from whom Messiah would come. Aren't the purposes of God very interesting to you? Aren't the ways of God very interesting? I mean, God would have given King Saul so much more if he had been obedient. But he has in mind a greater man, a man David, of whom there is a greater son to come and be descended from. But in Israel's history, we have this King Saul for us, the first king of Israel. And so... The writer in Esther is drawing your attention and drawing my attention to an ancient feud, to an ancient hatred between an Amalekite and an Israelite, or Amalekites versus Israelites. And so he brings it to our minds by referencing these family histories, by referencing Mordecai and the connection to King Saul through family names and tribal names, family histories, and then by mentioning that Haman is an Agagite. But you know the interesting thing about this ancient antipathy, this feud between Israelite and Amalekite, is that it, it doesn't start with King Saul. It goes way back beyond previous before King Saul to Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, which reminds us what the Amalekites did when Israel had come out of Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness. The Amalekites launched, I suppose, guerrilla Warfare against the stragglers who are wandering in the wilderness. So right at the back of Israel wandering, perhaps those who were tired, perhaps the children, perhaps those who were lagging behind as they marched and trekked in the wilderness, the Amalekites came and attacked those in the rear. It was a cowardly attack, right? And in Deuteronomy 25, God says to Moses to tell the people, He says, Therefore when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land, that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. When you come into the land, you shall blot out all of Amalek. Which is the instruction to King Saul. Right? In the land who failed, of course, ultimately to do that. The Amalekites there, then, are always portrayed as the ancient enemies of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 17, when Israel had come out, you remember, of uh, Egypt, it records a battle between Joshua and the Amalekites. And you remember how Moses was to stand with his, stood with his hands up. When his hands were up, the Israelites were wiping out the Amalekites. When he grew tired and his hands came down, the Amalekites seemed to get the upper hand. And so Aaron and Hur, a relative of Moses, they had Moses sit on a stone, you remember, and then they held up his hands. And Joshua at Rephidim won a great victory against the Amalekites. And the Lord said, as a result of that, in Exodus 17, 14, I want you to write this in a book as a memorial and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You get the idea that God is against the Amalekites, right? But it goes back even further, by the way, to Esau, the son of Isaac, because his, great, his grandson is this man called Amalek 
who is born to Eliphaz, who is the son of Esau, who has Amalek by a concubine. And from that son, Amalek, grandson of Esau, all the Amalekites are descended, of whom King Agag in 1 Kings chapter 15 is a descendant. And therefore the writer to Esther is saying, of whom Haman is also a descendant. And so he immediately pitches for your information and for my information this long history of antipathy and hatred right here in verse 1. So what happens in chapter 3 must be seen in the light of just that phrase, Haman the Agagite, and all that stands behind that in relation to Israel as well. And very well, having said that, look at this man Haman. He's promoted to a position that he never had before, right? Something brand new. He is promoted, he is advanced. In fact, the text says he's given a throne above all the other officials. And there's no explanation given, right, by the writer to, to Esther of why Haman should have received such an advancement. There's nothing given. So what we have to do is to understand why the writer, in verse 1, immediately sets before us the advancement, the promotion of Haman. Why is it there for us to read? Well, you remember how chapter 2 ended. Chapter 2 ended, of course, with the lack of reward for Mordecai. Mordecai failed to receive recognition for his, un, his discovering of the plot against King Ahasuerus. There was no reward Nothing was given. It was just recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the King and stored in the archives. Not to be forgotten because it will come back to be read by the King. And so we are told about those events to store them up in our minds, but we immediately see that here's a man, uh, uh, an Agagite, not a Persian per se, but an Agagite who is elevated to a high place given uh, honor and prestige, while Mordecai, who saved the life of the king, is relegated to go back to your business, and no reward is given to him. So Mordecai, who demonstrates loyalty, he went unnoticed at the time, which was, of course, as we've said before, very unusual for Persian kings. They were very generous in rewarding loyalty to themselves from the treasuries and so on. Haman then is given honor, and Haman is given preference. Mordecai is ignored, and Mordecai is unrewarded. Even though Esther, you remember, made sure that the credit went to Mordecai and not to herself, who had made it known, uh, having received the information from Mordecai. So now, if you're given this kind of position, you would expect that there should be recognition, Right? I'm assuming that when the Queen of England dies and Charles, if he should ever make it to be king, that there would be some form of recognition, right? And no doubt the world will be submitted to that form of recognition. Look at the pageantry and look at all of that. It is, there is some recognition for advancement, isn't there? And this is exactly what you have in verse 1. There's a recognition of Haman. He is advanced by the king. And notice in verse 2, it, because it, his new position requires recognition, all the king's service, servants who were at the king's gate, where, by the way, Mordecai was, all the king's servants bowed down to Haman and paid him homage. Now, why did they do that? They did it by command of the king. It was Ahasuerus, it was Xerxes who said, you bow down to Haman. So he had placed him on this pedestal, uh, given him a throne. So by command of the king, all, when Haman passed by, were to bow down and pay homage. Now you know who can resist such vanity? Haman is, is, is just like that. He's like every man. He's vain in his nature. He's no, he's no exception from Haman's perspective. Notice that at the end of verse 2, that Mordecai did not bow down. And Mordecai did not pay homage. What does it mean to bow down or to pay homage? Well, to bow down means to acknowledge position. And to pay homage is to show the proper respect. Haman's elevation, Haman's promotion, Haman's position demands, according to the king's law, that there be a recognition of Haman. That there be honor given to Haman. You discover later on that that whole subject of honor becomes very important because honor should be given to Mordecai. 
And so, to bow down and to do homage is to acknowledge, to pay respect and so on. Well, Haman passes by through the king's gate, and we talked about the king's gate, you remember? And as, they came, as he came with his retinue through the king's gate, everybody bowed down except Mordecai. He probably just carried on writing, doing his scribal work, or whatever it was he did in the king's gate. He did not bow down, and he did not render homage to Haman the Agagite. You have no reason given why he refused to do that. The Bible doesn't tell us why. He just didn't do it. We don't know why he didn't do it. But you will notice how verse 1 begins, because verse 1 says, after these things, which takes your mind back to chapter 2. After those things in chapter 2, when Mordecai went unrewarded, which suggests that some time, some portion of time has elapsed since the events of chapter 2. And now Xerxes has raised up Haman the Agagite. Perhaps, because the Bible doesn't tell us, that Mordecai, perhaps Mordecai was disillusioned with Persian royalty. Well, look what I did. For Xerxes, the king, and there's no reward. But perhaps he's disillusioned. But as we know, all Jews in all of their history have had no regard for pagan kings. They're not inclined. They're inclined to bow down to God. Though they give themselves to idols and idol worship uh, throughout their history, yet they still retain this, this restraint in giving worship or acknowledgement to a pagan king like Xerxes. So perhaps that's what drove him. He refused to pay homage or bow down. And scripture doesn't explain it all to us, right? So I'm inclined to try and see into the text, right? To view Mordecai's refusal in the light of what we have been given, namely, this man Haman the Agagite. So that Mordecai's refusal should be linked to the definition or the description of this man, Haman the Agagite. And perhaps Mordecai is aware, because Jews have a long history of tradition among themselves, perhaps Mordecai is aware of the ancient feud that has come down through history. He certainly must be aware, uh, in one sense, of his own affinity with Kish and King Saul. And if that's true, then he probably was aware of what happened with King Agag, King Saul's failure to king, kill King Agag, which Samuel had to undertake. So he's certainly, perhaps, possibly uh, uh, aware of this ancient feud, this ancient antipathy. And this enmity is given to us by the author. And Mordecai's refusal to, be, to bow down, I think, should be seen in the light of what Haman the Agagite represents and all that the scripture has unfolded. And you will notice that Mordecai's refusal to bow down is not a once-off thing, right? Every single time Haman went by, Mordecai refused to bow down. It got so bad that the other servants, all the other king's servants, they noticed his refusal and they even speak to Mordecai about his refusal, right? Probably insinuating, look, look Mordecai, if you don't bow down to Haman, then you're inviting trouble if you persist in this course. And certainly, you'll notice in verse 4, it says that when they spoke to him day after day, and he wouldn't listen to them, they told Haman. So, Mordecai refuses to bow down, and verse 4 says they often spoke to him about this refusal. It was something so obvious. Haman came by, and everybody went down, except one man. He came by the next day, maybe in the afternoon, and everybody went down except Mordecai. And it went on and on, day after day after day. He refuses to bow down. It would appear that at the end of verse 4, the text tells us that he had told the other officials that he was a Jew. And perhaps that's inserted there to give us the reason why he didn't bow down. He was a Jew. There's this recognition that he belongs to another people who have another king, another lord, not Xerxes and not Haman. And so I'm, I'm inclined to see that that is, for the, from the writer's perspective, why he says these things, that we might think like that. Now you see after a while that these king's officials, they, king's servants, they tell Haman about it, Right? And probably Haman, I think, has not been too aware of Mordecai's refusal until this point. 
So he passes by and people go down and he doesn't think about it. Because they're all going down everywhere he goes. So he's not really thinking about that kind of thing. But eventually they tell him, and until it's pointed out to him, Mordecai's refusal, only at that point it would appear that Haman becomes aware of the refusal of Mordecai to bow down. Perhaps these king's officials told uh, Haman because they wanted to see, well, does Mordecai have some kind of special privilege that we don't know about because he's a Jew? Don't know. Perhaps they did that. But sure enough, in verse 5, uh, Haman observes, doesn't he, Mordecai's refusal for himself. Verse 5, it says that, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay Haman's homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He gets very angry. Takes it as a personal insult, right? He's mad. I mean, who does this Jew, this Mordecai, think he is that he doesn't bow down? All the king's servants bow down. In fact, the king has commanded everyone to bow down. Who is this man? So now he's, his focus is on Mordecai and he is filled with fury. In fact, he's very, very similar to Xerxes or Ahasuerus, isn't he? Who was mad when Vashti refused to obey him and come to his presence. And now we see here in verse 6 the mind of Haman, right? The mind of Haman. In verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. And so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahaz. He, he kind of scorns the idea of getting Mordecai alone. Why do I want to just do that? In fact, he has plans for every single Jew in the entire kingdom. Has plans in the 127 provinces to destroy every Jew. And from verse 7 through the end of chapter 3, that's the plan, which we'll, Lord willing, consider next week together. So notice how he moves from disdain. He disdains to lay hands on Mordecai. He moves from disdain, which is on one level, to complete destruction of a people on another level. As far as Haman's concerned, that would give him the honor that he craves. That he desires. Ah, Haman is the man who thinks more highly of himself than others do, right? We are often we are told in Scripture to never think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but Haman thinks more highly of himself than others actually do think of him. He is the deluded man. He imagines that all love him, that all must honor him, all revere him, because he is the world's man. He's like Xerxes. He has a throne. What more remains for Haman except a kingdom? Power to be snatched and to be grabbed at. He's the world's man, if ever there was a world's man. He is like Cain in the Old Testament. He is like Esau. He is like that ancient Lamech. And he is like Nimrod. He's the man of the world. Powerful, thinks nothing can affect him until one Jew just refuses to even acknowledge him. And that stands out in the text, right? That's what the writer wants you to see, wants you to feel that. We know when we look at Haman that he is a man filled with sin. Sin has got a hold of him, right? Sin drives him. Sin has blinded Haman to himself. There's no moderation. He seeks to destroy an entire people, genocide, wipe them out, whatever it takes. Violence and hatred, to Xerxes as well, are simply the means of achieving their ends, their goals. And no doubt there are dictators in the world today, violent men and women who have the same agenda. They use power, they use murder, they use death, they use all these things to achieve their ends. Such thoughts then are just thoughts of vengeance and genocide, aren't they? History is filled with them. In the 20th century, of course, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Lenin. There's all one thing in mind. The elevation of themselves and the destruction of their own peoples even, let alone other peoples. Vengeance is the power of retaliation. Because that's what Haman engages in when Mordecai refuses to bow down to him and he finds out that he's a Jew. It's not just that he vents fury on Mordecai. He does nothing. But his plan 
His plan is the power of retaliation. I'll take it out on all Jews in all of the kingdom. But there is a vengeance that is right and just and holy and true, and it's God's vengeance. Don't take vengeance into your own hands, Romans 12, 19 says, but leave it to God, because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It belongs only to God. I mean, it is God who determines that He, God, will blot out the Amalekites. And that determination by God is absolutely just and absolutely right, because it's His holy vengeance against a wicked unholiness against him. And the vengeance of God must certainly be the wrath of God. For those who are destined, as the Apostle Paul says, to the wrath of God, imagine the fearsome vengeance of God against sin in persons, in people. That is why hell is described, I think, in Scripture in such horrific language. A place of torments, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth against God, hatred for God. I mean, this is what Pharaoh experienced and the Egyptians experienced, right? The wrath of God, God's power poured out upon them. You see, when a man or a woman or anyone turns to systemic evil or even systematic evil, God takes note. God is aware. And yet God can pour out Massive trouble on his servant Job, right? Just pour out trouble upon Job, but it's done not in vengeance, but it's done in pure love. Even though Satan is used as an instrument, and the Chaldeans are used as an instrument, and the Sabaeans are involved, all of those things in the sovereign purposes of God, is so that God might deal kindly and gently with his servant Job, though it brings trouble to Job. Oh, if that's what God can do with Job, then imagine what God can do with Haman and others. And God can leave His beloved Son, right, our Lord Jesus Christ, to the violent hands of sinful men. He can give His Son over to those men. I mean, we just sang, I was among the scoffers, ashamed to find myself among the scoffers at the cross, which is what we would have been. And so God can leave Jesus to the violence of sinful men. Why? Because He's motivated by love. He's motivated by love for His Son, and He's motivated by love for the people of the Son. One of the things that we have forgotten, but the early church never forgot, right, is that the cross, whilst it teaches us on one hand how to live, it really teaches us all how to die. That's what the cross shows us. So that from the cross, filled with forgiveness and filled with the love of Christ, we might go out into the world and be called upon to lay down our lives for Jesus. To learn how to die. As Jamiliat said, right, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Haman would destroy Mordecai, but in order to get to Mordecai, he must destroy Mordecai's people. You know, I'm sure Mordecai had never given that a thought when he refused to bow down. Never gave it a thought. If there's going to be any retaliation, well, it'll be me. No, that's not Haman's mind. Haman's mind is not just Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people. I don't think Mordecai had ever thought about that. Perhaps it came as a shock to him, right, to discover such a thing. Because Haman has bigger fish, fish to fry, doesn't he? That's why he disdains to lay hands on Mordecai. But if he gets them all, he gets Mordecai. And one of the uncertainties in the text is whether Haman really knew whether Esther was a Jew or not. We're not told. Certainly he must discover at some time or another that there's a relationship between Mordecai and Esther, which even though through all of the succeeding chapters, Haman never seems to recognize or to acknowledge. If he did not, or I mean, sorry, if he did, and that is probably possible, then Esther's life, of course, is also going to be in trouble. In fact, Mordecai recognizes that, that very possibility. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, verse 13, 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and de deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Perhaps that is the theme of Esther. Who knows whether you have not come to the throne, to this place, this position, by God's appointment. For God's purpose. So Mordecai certainly is aware of the retribution possibly against Esther, even though she's the queen of Persia. Okay, so having said those things, let me say some words in conclusion about an application, right? Number one, when you are threatened, when we are threatened in some way, we might seek to elude the threat to get out of the threat, to escape from the threat. And I think what that really implies is that we possibly have not really uh, thought about, well, what is God's purpose for me in whatever comes my way? Because it is human nature, and it is even in Christians, our nature to seek to escape, to seek to, to, to find out how can I get out of this situation, whatever that situation might be. I mean, I often think of the Apostle Paul, right, in, I think it's Acts chapter 21, when he's making his way to Jerusalem. And you remember how Agabus comes down from Jerusalem, the prophet, and binds his hands and, and says that this is what the Holy Spirit says, that this is what's going to happen to the man to whom this belt belongs. And everybody, Luke says, including himself, all sought to dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. And Paul says, but why are you weeping? He says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, but I'm ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets bad news, and what does Paul, how does Paul react to it? He just says, God has called me to go this course, and I'm going. And it doesn't matter, whatever, whatever man might do is not important. It's what God has determined for my life. So don't be too quick or hasty to, to escape what is God maybe doing? What is God maybe asking of me in whatever situation? Because generally we might pray something like this, Lord, get me out of this. Lord, help me. Set me free from this problem that I have or whatever it is. But do we stop and ask ourselves, what is it that the Lord is requiring of me in this situation? What does God have planned for me? I mean, that's how you should respond, right? I think that's how we should respond. <laughs> how weak we really are, because so often we want to just get out of whatever it might be. I say that's how we should respond for one simple reason. Every event, every single event in your life is in the hands of God. And it is in the hands of God first, before you're even aware of it. Before it ever forces itself upon you or suddenly throws itself upon you, God has already had it in His purposes and minds for centuries. You're His plan for your little life and my little life. So that God is not shocked and God is not surprised by the events of your life and how shocked we are or surprised we are about all that happens. In one sense, we are like that because we are human. We are weak, right? Not so much because we're sinful, that lead, that's another level also, but because we're just flesh and blood. We're weak. And that's how we respond. But certainly because of sin and what it has done to us, that's also how we respond. We seek to escape. But what we have to remember is that, is that God is always behind the scenes directing all events. Not just all events corporately as it were for the whole world, but all events of my little life and your life. Every single event. Every daily event. Every hourly event. Every minute Second, whatever it is, God's hand upon your life. And listen, dear congregation, God's hand is upon the lives of His people. It doesn't matter where His people are found, and it doesn't matter the circumstances of the lives of His people, whether it's abject suffering and poverty, or whether it's comfortable life, whatever it is. It's God's hand is in every second of your life. And when you start to think about yourself, then you start to drift away from God and His purpose. And I want to say to you, here you can see a situation 
in Esther chapter 3 that is horrific in its planning, in its strategy, and yet we see God. That this is God working things out, using the evil of men for His good, for His glory, and for His people. Submission to providence in the moment is never an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do, yet it is immensely beneficial and profitable to us. We have to train our minds that in the events of providence I will submit myself to God. How could Job thank God? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of God. How could a man respond like that? Do you know how he could do that? Because he was righteous and blameless. He was a holy man. His first thought was about what God was doing. God gave. God took away. Blessed be God. That was his first thought, right? What is God doing? That's what I say to all of us, to, to myself. What is God doing in my life, in my ways? God desires that I put my life into His hands, that I put my ways into His hands and seek His glory, right? Because if God so delivers us into evil, then how good of God to do so. How good of God to do so. And if God does not do that, how good of God not to have done that. You see, you can't get away from the goodness of God, no matter whether it's evil or whether it's good. God is good in the midst of the evil and the suffering. But we tend to subclassify evil or sin into one category, and everything else is out of that under God. Do not think for one moment that sin is not in the hand of God and His purpose. It surely must be. Because when Adam sinned, God knew all about it. And when Adam sinned, God's purpose is already in place to bring about redemption and salvation through Jesus. And all of the Old Testament, all of into the New Testament is the plan of God being worked out, which results in your salvation. Which puts you into the hands of that same God who has maintained and controlled all things, who even holds the universe by the word of His power together. Not one atom out of place. Nothing. All in the hands of God. That's the first thing. Second thing is, I sometimes think it's right also to seek deliverance. Because... Mordecai was going to say to, to Esther, we need to seek deliverance. Who knows where deliverance will come from if you refuse to be an instrument in the hands of God. So sometimes our helplessness and our weaknesses ought to drive us to God again and again. To complain really against such a thing is to deny that God loves me. And God doesn't care for me. Therefore get me out of this, Lord. Because if you loved me, you wouldn't put me in this. No, it's precisely because God loves that He puts us in those circumstances to show us more of His love, more of His affection. So that in the midst of trial and suffering, I mean, look at the lives of the saints of God. Paul, a life of trial and suffering. For God, because of God. So that in the midst of my trials and my sufferings, whatever they might be, let me look for God, His deliverance first. And so I should acknowledge my total inability to deliver myself. Because so often we try to get out of things ourselves, come up with our own plan, whatever it might be, our own strategy. But instead what we have to do is assert our complete dependency on the Lord. Not our independency, but our dependency total upon the Lord Himself. Isn't that what we mean when we think of Jesus who said, not my will, but your will be done. That's what we mean. Number three, always try and prepare yourself for sudden change whenever it may come. It may come tonight. It may come tomorrow. I don't know. In other words, I have unknown days ahead of me. Unknown minutes, unknown seconds ahead of me. They're still in front. Those are all in the hands of the Lord. They're not in my hands. They're in the hands of God. I don't know where they will go. I don't know what path they take, but they're in the hands of God. So if sudden change were to come, why would I stop and think for a moment, well, where were you, God? What happened? No, God was there. He's been there all along. I acknowledge Him when everything is smooth sailing. Why wouldn't I acknowledge Him when catastrophe strikes? 
God gave, God take away, took away, blessed be God. So when we give our unknown days, our unknown seconds to God, then you discover that God always has your welfare at heart. He's just simply showing you His love and His care. That means I should give to the Lord all my plans, all my purposes, all my goals, all my ambitions, and I should tell Him in the giving of those things to Him that I desire His glory above all things first. Lord, I want Your glory in what I think is right for my life. Here are my plans. Here are my goals. Here are my ambitions. I give them to You. I submit them to You. Do with them as You please for Your glory. And when we do that, right, when you desire God and His glory, then I can tell you this, you will be able to live in the ever-changing circumstances of life. Because they change all the time. And the only way you can meet them and I can meet them is to rely upon this sovereign God who is so providentially loving and caring of His people. So may the Lord help us to that. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank You for Your Word. And though this thorny way leads to a joyful end, help us in the thorniness of it to be a joyful people, to be a content people, to be a submissive people. There are plans in the hands of wicked men and women around the world that, that you know everything about, that you have determined the, the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, all things in between, because you are God. And we confess that tonight. You are our God and our lives, all the intricacies, all the troubles, all the failures, all the sins, everything within your hand. Oh, help us to turn from ourselves, to turn from our sins and to cast ourselves upon you and to give ourselves to you so that we might enjoy living life day by day with all of its vicissitudes and changes that we might live in the reality of your presence with us and the joy of it. So train us and teach us these things, we pray. And thank you for your word. And thank you again, Father, for this Lord's Day, this day of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us to worship. Now we give ourselves to you. Go before us, direct our ways. Help us through this week. Bring us together again, we pray, for your glory. We ask it all with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.